Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, I'm Charmaine Chan, and this week in SCMP Books, we look at the No Holds Barred memoir, Group, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. It's by Chicago-based lawyer Christy Tate, who in 2015 ditched a novel she'd been working on, and then just a month later started writing about her own life. I caught up with Christy recently and asked her about her 20 years of therapy, about the process of writing a memoir, and why the change in direction. During that month, I moped around and I felt bereft. I thought, I had this novel that I didn't know how, it was a mess. It was a first draft. I had no idea how to fix it. And I, I didn't feel like working on it. And I thought, well, I guess I'm not a writer. And what I did was I just stepped away from all writing for a month. And I read every craft book I could get my hands on, all the big ones, like Robert, Robert, Robert McKee's story and Save the Cat and these books that I'd heard writers talk about on Stephen King's On Writing. And I just saturated myself. And one day I was sitting in my office and I realized, oh, I have a story about going to therapy and I could see the arc. Like I started out here, lonely, suicidal, friendless. And I had all these adventures. And at the end of the story, I was able to have a marriage and close friends and a close group. And I could just see the book. Would it be accurate to describe it as a self-help memoir, not just a memoir? That's a great question. I don't think so. And here's why. I think of it as like a journey memoir. I also think of it as coming of age, even though I started at age 27. But I don't think of it as self-help because I don't think everybody should go to group. I don't think that group therapy is necessarily for everyone. But then again, now that I say that out loud, I do believe in the power of a group uh, of having people who really truly know you inside and out, all of your mess, all of your secrets. I think there's transformative power in that. Interesting that you use the word journey because I got to the end and I thought, hooray, you've not used the word journey because it really it, it really bugs me that everything's a journey these days. Yes, yes. And especially self-help books. And I thought, you've probably made a conscious effort to just go delete, delete whenever that yes. word came up. Absolutely, because to your point, the word journey has no more meaning. Anybody who's staying alive is on a journey because you're you're doing something day to day. And I think that the trope of the journey is hollow now. And there's nothing about my experience of going back and forth to my therapist's office 
pulling out my hair, talking about my apple binges, talking about the terrible sex I was involving myself in. Nothing about that feels like a journey. It feels like mess. It feels like scrapple. It feels like hard, hard work. And journeys sound peaceful. That wasn't peaceful. You've already mentioned some of the reasons you went to group for therapy, but what was so wrong with your life at that point for people who haven't read the book that you decided to go and share with people you didn't know? Yeah, the crisis point was I had gone to law school. I was in law school and I finished my first year and I found out I was number one in my class, which should have been a moment of unbridled triumph. But what happened was I was excited for about five minutes and then I just felt the sinking in my heart. And almost almost instantaneously, I felt, oh my God, doom and despair because I knew I really, really, really was bad at relationships. And now I was gonna have a really big career and I wasn't gonna have time to fix myself. And I had only gone to law school because I was bad at relationships and I thought, well, I'll never have a husband. I'll never have a family. I guess I'll be a lawyer. And now that was all happening and I'd set it in motion and I was gonna have a great job and everything was gonna go great professionally. But inside, personally, I was dying and I kind of was having a little bit of thoughts about should I kill myself because I was really depressed, but you couldn't tell from the outside and that discrepancy was tearing me apart. Tell me about Dr. Jonathan Rosen. That's a pseudonym, right? Just yes, that yes. Right. Okay. Everybody in the book has uh, a different name and then I disguised identities, but so he was the, he's the, he's at the helm of these group therapy sessions. And the first day I went to see him, I told him I'm doing great in law school. I'm going to have a great career, but I'm going to die alone unless you help me. He has dedicated his life to helping people get well in groups. And he did not bat an eyelash. He was like, okay, great. What do you want? And I was like, well, I want a boyfriend who's got good hygiene. (laughs) I want some friends. And that's really it. That's what was on my bucket list. And he said, great, we can do that. So I wondered whether you portrayed him exactly as he was or whether he was kind of several characters in one. Have you only ever seen or, or, or had one therapist and that was Dr. Rosen? I have had several therapists and in my mind, this is the singular Dr. Rosen. But what's interesting is, first of all, the, all these events took place many, many years ago. It started in 2001 and the book ends in 2008. So this is going back. What I realize more and more is that even though I'm portraying him as I hear him in my memories, it's still, he is a character. It's a construction of my memory. And he does outrageous things that I'm like, I wrote the truth of what happened, but there's only, there's still a mediation, a slippage that happens from the real world to memory to page. And interestingly, my group mates read the book in advance, they read different drafts and they were like, I don't remember any of this, or I don't think that Dr. Rosen said that. 
And I, I'm like, I swear on my mother's grave, my mother's alive, but I swear he said that. So it just, it highlights how I have constructed and reconstructed memory and things that happen. And my memory is different from my group mates. And the Dr. Rosen in my head is different than the one of today and probably very different than the one of back then because now I've had to take this big, larger than life character and put them on the pages of my book. So I think a lot gets lost. Well, I'm glad you brought truth up because it's truth is seen through your eyes. Yeah. And um, I, I, I'm glad that you also um, uh, clarified that you, you showed your group members drafts of your book. So were they able to say, no, nah, <laughs> don't include that? Did they have that power to say, please don't? Yes, I gave them that power. I told them that I had written stories. My goal was to talk about myself, why I came to treatment, what happened to me. And I tried to leave my groupmates out of it, except to the extent that they gave me something for my story. But of course, a lot of that is gray, murky area. You know, I had to still describe them. I had to tell the reader, who are these people I was sitting with? And so I, I thought for me, I cared more about the relationship and doing it right by them than I cared about like artistic integrity. So I gave them drafts and I said, if there's anything you want me to take out or if I haven't properly disguised you or whatever it is, let's talk about it. And none of them made any requests of me. Although there's one character, he didn't feel like reading my book, which fine, but his wife read it and she asked me to make a couple of changes just to, to be sure that they were protected their privacy. And I was happy to do that. And I, uh, other writers are aghast when they hear that I gave these group of people a veto power of, over my story. But to the extent that I brought them in, it's their story. And I felt like collaborating was the only way to go. I mean, I know Dr. Rosen also allowed or maybe even encouraged um, the group members to date each other and then talk about it, which seems extraordinary. Although, you know, this whole group was about uh, not having any secrets because secrets were deemed to be toxic. Just going back to what you do to mold a book like this into something that, that um, you know, we can read and enjoy. So um, I want to talk about the elements of fiction, perhaps. Were there apart from Dr. Rosen, uh, who you say what was how you remembered him, were there amalgamated characters? And was it kind of sequentially faithful? Oh, yes, it was sequentially faith faithful. But that's, that's, how I, that's how it happened in my life. I started with one group, then I joined a different group and added it, and then I joined the third group. So that's how it happened. And the characters... Uh, most of them are have real life analogs. I didn't consolidate characters because everybody's so distinct to me. Tell us about your pitch to your publisher. I mean, there are any number of memoirs out there. How did you get them to say yes to your book? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Nobody has asked me that. The first step, I had an agent, or have an agent, and she's really wonderful. And she she saw the potential in the book, and she thought that the voice was great and the story. And nobody's really written about group therapy, and people people seem to be interested in books about therapy. A year before my book came out. Lori Gottlieb is a therapist who wrote a very famous memoir that did amazing called Maybe You Should See Someone. And so, she, you know, she sort of paved the way for my book, which is a wonderful thing. And the way the pitch letter that my agent sent out to publishers was, here's a lonely, here's a lonely high achieving law student who's got all these opportunities but she's lo- she's lonely and has no friends and needs needs a transformation in her personal life and enter this wacky doctor and these groups and and throughout this process Christy is learning how to date how to have friends how to have a roommate and it culminates in her sort of straightening out her romantic life which is really a testament to what it means to have a group and have witnesses who can reflect back your own growth and ways in which you could make better decisions because that was really my problem I made terrible decisions apart from um, Gottlieb's book did you read any other books to help you with your own book yeah I've always been a huge reader and I really love memoir I just there's something about knowing that it's true and Mary Carr who's the great she's a great memoirist she has a book called the art of memoir and of course lit and liars club I read all of her work more than once. And she says she loves memoir because every every person who writes a memoir has lived to tell the tale. So I get extra boost of hope knowing that Cheryl Strayed came back from the Pacific Coast Trail. And I loved her book. And I love um, Lydia Yuknovich has a book called The Chronology of Water, which is wild and beautiful and experimental and I, I I don't write like Lydia Yuknovich writes but there's something about the way that she like goes to the guts that's what I wanted to give to my readers I wanted to give them a true story with all the guts I had inside of me and that's where I that's where I drew my inspiration from memoirs that I just love about the writing process was it from A to B in linear format, or did you just kind of scribble down what you wanted and then once you were kind of done, um, you know, shape it into what we have today? I always started with that summer day when I had found out I was first in my law school class. And by the end of the night, I was like wishing for death. I could always tell, I felt that was the beginning of the story because that was the push, that was the pain push I needed to like seek out help. And so from there, I sort of initially, I had one little post-it note that sort of had a very rough outline, like first in my class, very sad, go see Dr. Rosen. And then all I used at the very first draft, I just charted from the boyfriends I went to <laughs> that I had. And so it was more a story about like more general, like finding a husband. But really, when I got deeper into the drafting process and realized it was really so much more than that, it was finding myself, finding my voice, finding relationships and all the ways in which that really happened turn by turn in group. And so 
it, I wrote it out chronologically. And then when I went back in different drafts, there were places where I went just way deeper. And in the original draft, I had one line about how sometimes at night I eat a lot of apples. Boom. And I just went on and I had a writing teacher stop me and say, what does that mean? And I said, well, you know, at night I would eat like six to 12 apples every night of my life. And she was like, you need to show your readers that you need to show us sitting in your apartment or whatever you were doing, eating those apples. And so th there, those were moments where readers helped me understand where to go deeper. I must admit, the part about the apples read strangely for me because you were talking about your bulimia. And, he, you know, so I'm thinking of maybe chocolate eclairs, maybe hamburgers, apples. You feel guilty about eating apples? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Well, that I've had so many readers say that and I think I would have had the same reaction because when I was actively bulimic, it was it was a pizza. It was a box of cookies. It was it was extraordinary, like Michael Phelps level of eating, even though I wasn't an Olympic swimmer. But because the apples, which are so innocuous, like who's I don't even think like a medical physician would be like, eh. That's a little strange, but you're not going to get hurt, you know. But the fact that it was a secret for so many years, it turned into this thing inside my head. It turned moldy and nefarious in a way that the, the heartbeat of the, of the problem was the secret. It wasn't what I was actually eating or how many calories it was. It was the secret part had made me feel like this makes me as bad as a murderer. That's how, that's how ashamed I was. Just going back to the book structure itself, there is a familiar arc of personal development. I mean, people who read uh, memoirs and this, this kind of memoir will, will know that um, it's not unusual to have uh, the author come back 10 years later, as you do in your yeah. postscript, to tell readers how you're doing. Um, yeah. So was that you being influenced by the memoirs that you'd read or was that just what your publisher said you must do or that's just what you wanted to do? Well, the, one of the things I wanted to make very clear to my readers was that my work isn't done. I really wanted my readers to know I still go to therapy. I didn't want it to become a book where, guess what? I got married and lickety split, I'm all cured. That has not been my experience. I'm, I'm stable, I have wonderful relationships and I still go to therapy because I still have issues. And I talk about myself like I'm a therapy lifer. And that's not because I'm a hot mess 24 seven for the rest of my life, but it's because I believe in support. I believe in having that structure that helps me go out into the world outside of therapy and be a mom and to be a civil servant and to do service work in my community and be a wife. It helps me do all those things. And I wanted readers to know that. And it wasn't the public. I think my agent, when we were working on the book to try to get a publisher, she said, why don't you just include like a little epilogue? And she just tossed off the idea. And I said, well, let me see the other pieces. I didn't want to stop. I didn't want the book to end at a wedding because that seemed very, anti-feminist to me like I got married it's all good I that was something I was like nervous about now was writing itself therapy 
Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's true. One of the things that I noticed very practically was when I was writing about all those old relationships, the boyfriends and the boys who dumped me on the street and the ones who didn't like me because I wasn't the right religion. What I found through the writing process was a real softening in my heart, a true sense of gratitude because each of those men played a really vital role. Like they gave me something I couldn't have gotten on my own. I had to learn these lessons in relationship. And I had this vision of these men as like volunteers to play a, a not a permanent, but a short term role in my life where I could practice these skills and blunder and make mistakes. And I felt so much love for all of them. Even at the time when they were like dumping me, <laughs> I was like, I, I didn't, I don't really do bitterness exactly, but the writing process helped me understand that they had each helped me learn something vital about myself. And I felt grateful for them being willing to dance with me for however long they were willing to. And then also grateful that they, they went on their way. I just like, I wasn't supposed to be with any of them. And so the whole thing, I just felt a real softening and it empathy for me who I used to be and the men that used to have to be with me <laughs> what I liked in this book was the humor but it sometimes seemed a little bit wrong to be you know tossing in jokes when actually there's a death wish in there and there's you yeah. know there's so much darkness um did you go back and inject this humor or, or, or did, were you writing it like that? Because some, sometimes it did seem a little bit sitcom-ish. Um, Interesting. I think that's a super fair comment. And what, what is funny to me is I used to have a lot more jokes in there. And to your point, I had a couple of readers early on who were like, you cannot make everything a joke. It is not funny that you went to group and one of your groupmates brought in the, the, the ashen remains of a young child. Like that's not that funny. And I really had leaned too hard on the humor in early drafts, even harder than I, I did in the ultimate book. But I leaned too hard on it because I can be funny, but funny can be a way to hide and a way to be disingenuous in some ways. And so I'm not, I'm not surprised to hear you say that. I actually feel like grateful for how closely you read it and how honest you're being. Can you tell us what these group sessions were like? There were 90 minutes and you just went and met um, three times a week. I don't know any lawyer who has that much time to, to do this sort of thing, but you, you, you did that for, for years. Um, yeah. How did it all start? Did you just kind of take it in turns to, to spill your guts? So often if somebody comes in initially like with a big issue, what will happen is maybe that'll be like a 30 minute thing and there'll be lots of triage. Like, what are you feeling? What does your husband say? How are, like, what about your children? Like just sort of some of the logistics and some of like the deep emotion about it. And then the conversation will eventually drift to someone else who'll be like, well, remember last week when I was talking about my boss? Well, here's what happened. So there's sort of like a keeping everybody up to date. And if there's six people in the circle, not everybody's acutely having a, 
an issue, but everybody has sort of a check-in like, oh, I've got this coming up or this happened last week. And so there's a lot of that where things get really spicy and really scary for me personally is when there's conflict among the members or sometimes Dr. Rosen, he doesn't fight back, but sometimes people are really mad at him. That's when things get really unusual because I don't have any other forum in my life where someone can just scream at me or just have all these emotions and then other people are fighting. Like I didn't grow up like that. I don't do that in my profession. I don't do that in my house now, but it's been an awesome experience to learn how to fight, how to tolerate big emotions, how to show my own big emotions. And that doesn't happen every session. That's real intense. It probably happens once every two months and it's really intense and really hard to describe, I think. For me, Dr. Rosen remains an enigma to the end. I envisage him as this gray beard who interjects from time to time. You're just there kind of, um, you know, chatting to, to, to your group members. Was it deliberate that you, you made Dr. Rosen kind of, not amorphous, but hard to grasp for me? Sure. Um, for me too. I think there's no other way I could have written that because that is how I experience him. I don't know because he's behind the therapists. Like he's, he's, he is an enigma, right? Cause he doesn't bring his stuff in. I don't know how he feels about any of the things that he sits through <laughs> that we do. Sometimes I can tell that he feels sad or when I got the book deal, for example, he said, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm so proud of you. I'm so grateful. But he kept saying those three things, proud, happy, and grateful. And it was really an amazing thing. But at the end of the day, he holds so many people. He holds my group, all my groups. You know, I only go to one now, but he holds my group, everybody's stuff and their secrets and their history because people stay a long time so I've been there almost 20 years the people in my group have been there longer than I have that's a lot of weight that he carries and space that he holds and I think to myself I feel like I know him but I have I have no idea what he does for fun when like so many basic things I know about people I'm really close to so there is there is, he is a larger than life figure in my life and in my group. So sometimes it's hard for me to remember, like, he's just a dude. He probably has things he loves to watch on Netflix, but I'll never know what they are. So it's a weird, it's weird. It's very weird. Writing wise, what's next for you? I feel like I want to write, I'm, I'm toying with fiction, but I also feel like, I'm just not sure. Like last time I wrote fiction, <laughs> I, had, I had to sink for a month and then I came up with group. So I'm not sure fiction's ever in the cards for me. It might just be a place for me to like put some energy while I think up my next like nonfiction projects. Right now, I'm, I told my mom when she read the book, which was really embarrassing. So there's tons of sex in it. And um, she said, she said, oh, 
it was very explicit, Christy. Um, I was like, sorry, mom. And I swore I was never going to write about sex again. I'm just never doing it again. I did it. I'm never doing it. But now I'm finding myself, I'm working on an essay about the night I lost my virginity. So maybe I'm not done. <laughs> um, so right now I'm just working on essays and trying to trying to think of what the next project is. I think the next project, I think everybody's gone to group with me and I'd like to offer up different areas of my life or different scenes because I don't think we need to go. I think we've already done group. And so letting letting new ideas emerge, I think it's just not, I can't quite see it yet. It's not in focus. Thank you for your time. It's kind of been therapeutic. <laughs> I appreciate, I'm glad this worked out and it's been really fun to talk. You've asked the most insightful questions. I'm so grateful. Thank you. I've been speaking to Christy Tate, author of Group, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. It's from Simon & Schuster. Thank you. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.